Ellie's one of the sweetest people I, I know, and I know a, f- a lot of people. And she went to Israel with us uh, and had a delightful time, a life-changing time. Which, oh, by the way, nice segue into an announcement that we have an upcoming Israel trip on the uh, 10th to 20th of January. Trip is filling up. Most of the people on the trip are tolerable. I think you'd enjoy being with them. There's a couple questionable. Not you, Patty. No, we're all going to have fun together. We're going to have a wonderful time. We're going to learn a lot. And uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to get your email back to my wife after the service so that we can make sure that we have an opportunity to let you know what the trip's all about. Let's pray for our teenagers. Oh, Lord, there's so much you can do this week. Make and keep them receptive, open, trusting, trustworthy. Fill them, feed them. Love on the lambs today and raise them up as warriors for Christ. Let them enjoy themselves, enjoy laughter, enjoy, and bring them home safe and full, ready and prepared to minister to this community in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three guys go to a building, a a hotel, to get a three-room suite. They get to the counter, and the manager of the hotel says, that'll be $30. Each of the three men give a $10 bill. They then go up to their room and get settled in. The manager, having rethought the situation, decided he would only charge them 25 So he gave the bellhop five $1 bills and asked him to go up to the room and give them their $5 back. So the bellhop knocked on the door, gave each man a dollar bill, still having two in his hand. Each of the men at this point has each paid $9 a piece. Nine times three is 27 plus the two in the bellhop's hand is 29, what happened to the other dollar? I'm trying to measure how sharp a congregation I have. And I'm getting a little concerned. They've each paid $9, yes? Nine times three is 27, yes? The two in the bellhop's hand makes 29. Where's the unaccounted for dollar? I could not tell you, and then maybe it would motivate some of you to come back to church next week. But I'm not that away. Yes, nine times three is 27. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the situation. When you pay for something and get change, you use two forms and functions of mathematics, addition and subtraction, never multiplication. The fact that nine times three is conveniently into the story is irrelevant because it doesn't belong there. Never would you use multiplication to make change. We, in our lives, too often use multiplication when addition and subtraction is all that's really necessary. 
that he would increase and that we would decrease, that he would add to our number, that we would die to self. Most of our spiritual life is addition and subtraction. There are times when God divides the church up and they multiply, but for us individually, we're about adding and subtracting, not about multiplying. When we multiply, we say two times three, three times four. The word times is where we get into trouble. If you're using the word times too often in describing your life, there's a possibility that you're not walking in the freedom that the Lord really wants for you. In other words, the word times, multiplication, times, is too often involved in our life when it really doesn't belong. For instance, how many times have I told you? How many times have I done that? How many times as a kid did I spend my whole paycheck? How many times did I self-destruct? How many times did my relationships just blow up? How many times have I heard I can't commit? How many times have I heard I can't be intimate? How many times have I stayed guarded when I needed to be vulnerable? How many times did I experience shame and sin when what God wanted for me was freedom and grace? How many times? How many times have you been to church? How many times have you not? How many times have you given? Forget the times, my friend. The time has come for times to go away. The time is here for addition and subtraction. The only time that Jesus uses the word multiplication or times is how many times you and I are going to forgive somebody 70 times seven. Amen? Forget the times. We're doing a series on freedom in Christ and times just doesn't belong. Let's move on. Einstein said, a true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. People in prison need to, should, enhance their imagination. Imagination in imprisonment is, if nothing else, a temporary form of escape. We don't talk enough in the body of Christ about imagination. We know that God can do more than we can imagine, but that's not really saying much if we don't imagine much. If we don't imagine much, the bar for the Lord's pretty low. If we imagine big, the bar for the Lord's pretty high. What do you do with your sanctified imagination? In your area of bondage, and if you're not aware of one, you need to be as we go forward because it exists. There's an area of your life where you're not as free as you could be. Imagine what your life would look like what you would feel like, what your relationship with others and the Lord would be like if you weren't imprisoned anymore. The only prison the Christian's allowed to stay in and should stay in their entire life is that of being a prisoner of Christ. Why? Because as a prisoner of Christ, we are constrained 
We are walled in, we are restricted by the love of Christ. That's a prison we don't want out of. All the others we do, and while we're there, just for the sake of conversation, just imagine a little bit about what life would be like if you were past whatever that cyclical, habitual, weighed down, ever-present behavior is. And if you don't know what it is, the odds are the person that you came with can help you out. All right, let's review a little bit. Last week, Galatians 4, 1 through 3. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Okay, let's quick review. Remember, in Roman times, you were raised by the slaves of the house, the guardians and trustees. You were raised by those people who themselves were slaves, and you had no more rights than the head slave when it came to uh, favoritism or whatever else would exist until you came of age. Once you became of age, a Roman parent, can you believe this, would adopt their son or daughter as their own. They would change what they wore in public to signify they now of age and they could become a citizen of Rome. You know, this sounds pretty far-fetched and you might be asking me, what does it have to do with living in uh, one or two different houses here in 2023 and living full or part-time in Highlands Plateau? A lot. Some of you were raised by slaves. Some of you were raised by people who had yet to experience the freedom that is ours in Christ. Some of us were raised by people who lacked the capacity to be who we needed them to be when we needed them to be it. And it's not until we came of age, until we relinquished our life to Christ, that we become an heir of Christ and a joint heir with Christ Jesus. Now, that formed us, shaped us, molded us in some way. Not all of us had terrible parents. Some of us had incredible parents, but yet they were still slaves. That is to say, they didn't know what freedom in Christ was, or hopefully not is. The New Testament you have in your hand is better understood as the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And what you as his heir, we as his heirs, have inherited through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now then, we came up, many of us, Christian or non-Christian, under an elemental spiritual force or principle, and what was that? Well, that is in cause and effect. If you do this, you'll be rewarded. If you do this, you'll be punished. Hardly a household doesn't incorporate this, this principle. Some more than others. Some to the detriment of our own health, relationally, socially, physically, even sexually. 
but cause and effect. We've been taught as slaves in our own house until we come of age when we have to make up our own mind. Our worth in some way, shape, or form is based on our performance. It's hard to escape it. Our whole entire culture is based on it. The cultural pendulum that swings, swings too far one way and realizes we're too hard on each other, so it swings the other way, and then we have a generation of entitled uh, children who think about suing their parents for college tuition. Two extremes, no doubt. And then we come into this um, reality where, and I hear it all the time, I see it all the time, I've lived it myself. It just came up the other day, I baptized a sweet young kid and the, the dad, and I knew what he meant, he goes, I said, I'm just so happy for y'all. I said, I'm proud of you. And he said, we're just not trying to push them too hard. Well, what, what is that as a parent? That's it, isn't it? How, how hard do you push? Or do you push it all? Or do you not push it all? Or do you let, the, let them make up their own minds? I mean, after all, how hard do you push someone into an intimate, honest, open, vulnerable relationship with Christ? I mean, it's almost an oxymoron. And in a way, if you push too hard, I'll go ahead and say it's not only an oxymoron, it's moronic. Nobody's pushing anybody into a meaningful relationship with anybody. It takes time and openness and everything else. So, we come up in this where we either drive our children to Christ or but to what level, I don't know. Every, every family's different, every kid's different. Or Christ attracts children to himself. Well, that's different. There's probably some combination of both. All right, I don't know the magic answer, and I don't guess anyone here does either. All doing the best we can in that regard. But I'll say this. I happen to know a thing or two uh, about Chick-fil-A, okay. I know a little bit about Chick-fil-A. It's not, it's, stop laughing because you know I go over there all the time and get uh, egg and cheese biscuits and that's why you're laughing. I'm talking about the way they do business. But yes, okay, you nailed it. Chick-fil-A's philosophy is to attract a customer, right? For the most part, I'm gonna speak for everybody, fast, well, they're not even fast food restaurants, but all the other ones, they almost want to drive a customer to their store with price points and giveaways and toys and whatever else. Gonna drive the masses to the store with price leaders and coupons and all that kind of stuff. Chick-fil-A, on the other hand, wants to attract people with quality food, quality service, quality environment, okay? Quality people serving the food. Where it comes to Christ, we're far better off being attracted to him than driven towards him. In fact, if you think about this, not now because you won't pay attention to the rest of what I have to say, but think about it later. How do you get rid of demons? You drive them out. And why is that? Because they have no worthy leader of following. They have to be driven. Well, 
When we try to change another person because they need to get freed up in the area, we can drive them, push them, but there also has to be a pull. There also has to be an attraction by Christ. Eventually, your, your children are going to have to be attracted to Christ. They're not going to swear an allegiance to him for life because you told them to. You know that. I know that. And that happens the same here in the sanctuary. He has to be attractive. As a youth minister, I used to, I used to realize these kids realize when I'm trying to put makeup on God and make him more attractive to them. I was a youth minister in the late 90s. That's when that generation, Gen X, started to get a little flavor of minimalism. Minimalistic thinking. And I was thinking, they were sitting, I was in a mega church with a $7 million budget, and I never did figure out why the sofas they gave me for teenagers to sit on had springs coming out of them. I never did figure that out. So I told them, I got, got around, formed a leadership group. I said, here, we're going to make some changes in this youth room. This place is nasty. We're going to get some new sofas, and let's paint this place. Let's get a new sound system. Let's put, Jeremy was in, he's at the soundboard. He was in my youth group. Let's put some lights up and get a decent microphone in here. Let's, let's get, not, and, and, and a lot of them looked at me like a puppy, you know, like when they turned their head, like, like, what? And then I realized that there's nothing inherently wrong with making physical improvements, but I had to be very careful to give them Christ as he truly is, not as I thought they wanted to hear about him. And the more gut level candid I got with those kids, the more, the more raw I got with who he is and what he expects and the high calling on your life, the more I told the truth, the more they were set free. I didn't, I didn't sit up there and said, this is Jesus, and I've already put rouge on him, and I've already made up his hair, I made it look like it's yours, so you can relate to him. No, they, they didn't want any part of that. They wanted to be attracted to him for who he is. That's why in Isaiah, he's not a good-looking dude. I gotta be honest with you. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And for those of you here today that really aren't that good-looking, you've got something more in common with Christ than a lot of us. Think about it that way. I'm trying to give you some good news. It's the gospel. Anyway, each of us eventually comes to age. We come to Christ. And then this process of sanctification begins. Cleansing, holiness, development, renewing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I, I needed to put childish ways behind me. All right, here's the last of the review. The restrictions and the lack of freedom that we have in our lives today, we're giving the devil far too much credit. He really doesn't have that much influence. We have to take personal responsibility for ourselves, where we are in Christ and where we're not. Our level of spiritual maturity is what determines our level of freedom. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you don't know the truth, good luck with that. Sometimes the absence of freedom <laughs> 
has to first be recognized as a personal responsibility and choice before we can start talking about how to get freed up. There's so much spiritual warfare going on in the church today when I think 85% of it is nobody's wanting to take personal responsibility for their actions, so they blame the devil. Not here. I don't give him that much credit. I don't think he's that influential. But spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is, is one who, well, I'll give you some examples. If you're here today and you want to get married, hopefully you're not married now. So let me clear that up. I, there's a lot of things you have to clear up now that you didn't have to clear up before. Don't get fixated on finding your spouse. The mature decision is become the spouse that God wants you to be. And when you're far enough along in that process, he'll send someone else who's doing the same. Amen? Maturity, spiritual maturity and freedom, it is to your glory to overlook an offense. Someone who's constantly offended is constantly imprisoned. That's a sign of immaturity. We need to work on that part of our life. When you could actually get to the place where you forgive, I think the word forgive needs to have an extra E in it. F-O-R-E-G-I-V-E, forgive. Meaning, there's, you have a foreknowledge you're gonna be wronged, a foreknowledge you're gonna be offended, a foreknowledge someone's gonna sin against you, someone's gonna cheat you, someone's gonna steal from you, someone's gonna talk behind your back. It's the forgiving. In the foregiving with an E, you already know what's gonna happen. You're not taken aback when it does. You're already walking and living with a heart that's prepared to let the captive free, to forgive them, to release them. Immaturity holds on to it for as long as we possibly can with the whitest of knuckles and ends up being the most bitter, poison, toxic life you can live. Sometimes with people that are so far long gone, they're buried and dead. Maturity. Grace is a sign of maturity. The system that we came up in, we weigh, we differentiate it between other things. It has its value, but at the end of the day, you enter into come of age, you come into a relationship with Christ, and here's what happens. You can't be good enough. You can't be good enough to get blessing after blessing. The blessings aren't necessarily tied to how good you are or how good you're acting. Conversely, you really can't be bad enough because where sin abound, grace does much more abound. We enter into this whole new system. We call it the church. If you're in the old system, you probably don't like the church because the church is the thing that's propagating the old system that you already know didn't work, if you were really honest about it. These are signs, signs of maturity. Our culture, see, if, if you wanna be free, you gotta know who you are. If you know who you are, then you'll know how to act. If you know to whom you belong, who holds your life, who bought you, if you know to whom you belong, you'll know how to live. 
Everybody wants to, see, whatever you focus on in life will get larger. If you want to focus on getting free and you want to focus on the constricting thing in your life, that constricting thing in your life will likely get larger and more influential. You don't look for answers, you look for Christ who has the answers. You don't look for freedom, you look for Christ who is your freedom. Everything goes through him. Know who you are and know to whom you belong. uh, Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. The I am has sent me to you. Who is you? I'm not asking you who you are based on your past, and I'm not asking you who you are based on what you think you're gonna do in the future. I'm asking who is you right now? Who are you? Because when the past or the future has too much of an influence and you defining who you are, when it unduly affects your identity, it clouds you from knowing who you are and to whom you belong, and you sacrifice the freedom that Christ wants for you to live in. Don't pump up your future to feel better that hasn't happened yet. Don't pump up the fantasy of the future to make you feel better about who you are today. It hasn't got here yet. Nor, my friend, do you need to pump up the past and make a trophy of the fact you survived it and at the same time devalues who you are in the present. I'm asking you, who is speaking to you today? Who did you worship today? I hope it's the I am, because the I am is dead center in this second, and this second, and this second, and the next second. The I am is right now. He defines you, he owns you, he knows you, and you have to define yourself who you are in relationship to him right now. Not 25 years ago, not 25 seconds ago, and certainly not 25 years into the future. You don't even know what you're going to do tomorrow. Your life is but a mist. As is mine. Who are you? Says the I am. When God went looking for Adam, what did he say? Adam, what did you do? Oh my gosh, what did you do? No, no. He said, Adam, where are you? I want to know where you are right now in relationship to me. I don't want to know what you did. I don't know what you're going to do in the future to make up for it. I don't want to hear that. And I don't know, I really don't want to hear what happened 20 minutes ago that made you do it. I want to know where you are right now. So, listen, as long as you came over here, got dressed up and everything, where are you in relationship to him right now? Right now in your life. Not not who, see, you used to go to a church years ago, then you stopped. What does it have to do with anything? You're thinking about making some improvements in your life and some changes, and you're going to try to find something in the future. What does it have to do with anything? Where are you right now with the I am? And you might find you're really somewhere. 
And you might find you're really nowhere. And you might find you're right where you've always been. And there really hasn't been a whole lot of change. And you might find that you're not anywhere, going anywhere, doing anything, experiencing anything, hiding behind some false reality that you know with God that you never speak with. There's all kind of answers to the right now. There's all kind of explanations to the past and the future. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. Who are you in the is is what freedom has to do with. James 1, 22 and 24 says this, do not merely listen to the word, amen for that, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Isn't that interesting? James is saying, I don't even know what mirrors looked like back then. He's saying when you look in the mirror, which is the word of God, there's some relationship between that image you made in the image of God and there's something about who I am based on what that word says and if I look into it and put it into practice, I'll know who I am. If I don't look into it and put it into practice, I'll have no idea who I am. I'll be who I think you want me to be. I'll think, I think I'll be who you need me to be but it may not be who I am. When you look into the word, what do you see about who you are? Does it differ from what someone's telling you you are? I have a feeling you're not as bad, some of you are not as bad as you think you are. And others of you aren't all that you think you are. Who cares either way? I wanna know what the I am says. I want to know what me and him, me looking in the mirror, what do I see, what does he see, and are they the same thing? He's my biggest cheerleader, and yours as well. Identity. If you know who you are by looking in the word as a mirror and putting into practice what he says about you, and you know to whom you belong, now you know who you are, and that's freedom. Because it's honest and it's true. I'm a kid that used to go to church on Christmas Eve every year. And my biggest fear as an 11-year-old kid, this was just haunted me. It ruined, it ruined my Christmas. I began, my parents taught me how to pray by telling me in advance we were going to church and I'd start praying we wouldn't. They did more for my prayer life without even realizing it. They said, we're going to church. You know, they made a mistake of saying two weeks in front of Christmas Eve. We're going to the Methodist church in Dunwoody for Christmas Eve. There was someone in Dunwoody praying for an 18-inch blizzard. I can tell you that. Because I didn't know if I was going to be wearing what I needed to wear so I didn't stick out to the other people that I went to school with who also went to church there. They dressed me up in a denim <laughs> leisure suit. <laughs> Do you know how easy it is to get your butt kicked in a denim leisure suit by kids that saw you in church? 
you know, you have to get inside the head of people who don't go to church to understand this phenomenon. You guys just waltz in here like it doesn't, you know, you're all freed up. The number one question asked about a church before someone goes is, what do they wear over there? First Corinthians 13, 12, for now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Here's what I'm saying to you, young lady, young man. Those of you kind of new to the game and you're trying to figure out is that place crazy? Is that guy credible? Are lives being changed there? What's happening? Great question. You need answers to all of those. But nothing more important than knowing who you are in relation to him. I see ladies, young ladies worried that they're not married yet. Uh, really weighs on some. I see guys who just, just don't seem to get it. Like they're not, they don't understand commitment and intimacy and vulnerability and intimacy with the Lord and being vulnerable in worship and having a love language for God. Don't you worry about anybody else and whether you have anybody else in your life. You've, the, you've got to cement these things now so that when you do have someone in your life, it's enjoyable, not a nightmare. He has to be one. He has to be the only thing. What has he given you? He's adopted us as his children. Like, I don't know whether you feel this way or not, but you were in an orphanage one day. I don't know how old you were, but you've been sitting there a while. Nobody picked you. The parents would come, and they'd come through there all the time. They'd meet in the office, and then they'd walk through there, and some kid wouldn't be there next, the next day. He got into the car with the people and went home and has a new life. You, you just sat there week after week after week. Well, God came in and looked at you and said, number one, I want him right there. I want that kid. I want that little boy. I want that little girl. God picked you, he adopted you. He, he brought you till you're of age. And he wants, to, he wants to call you his own. He has an inheritance for you and he has a mission for you, a plan, a calling, a gifts, his presence. That's what he has. He's given that to you. Now, whether you have taken it out and played around with it or not, I don't know, but you're adopted and you were chosen for a specific purpose. And you were given the ability, whether you use it or not, you already have it, it comes with the package, you have the mind of Christ to decipher things and solve problems and understand and discern and evaluate and prioritize. It's all there for you, just grow in it. You've been given the mind of Christ. Look in the mirror, it may not look like it, but it's there. You, you can solve the problems that you have in your life in partnership with him because you have a renewed mind. You can do that. You've been given a spirit of love, of power, and sound mind. You're not timid. 
You're not overbearing, but you're not timid. You're not afraid. You're, you are yourself and you're in partnership and koinonia with the spirit and no weapon formed against you can prosper. That's who you are. Now, I don't know if you feel that way, but I don't know that that's really relevant. I'm telling you who you are when you look in the mirror of the word of God. Until you start understanding who you are, we really don't have time to go down six weeks into this sermon series and figure out how you're gonna get over bitterness. Because bitterness becomes the issue, not who you are. You have to know who you are first to realize that bitterness doesn't belong. You go to another church for that. They'll talk about bitterness until the day is long. You have to talk about who you are, who you belong to, who you serve, who's your king, whose authority you're under, who you're subject to. If you're not subject to him, you'll be subject to bitterness. You gotta know who you are. I'm given a, you've been given great and precious promises by God. All your needs are met by God. You have peace with God, you're reconciled with him. I don't know, you may not feel smart, but you got the mind of Christ. You might not feel wise because you're not experienced, but experience has nothing to do with wisdom. That's a lie. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. Some of you can be the youngest people in the room, can be the wisest people in the room because you have the greatest healthy respect for God that others don't. That's who you are. And no one should look down on you, by the way, because you're young, because you are wise, you are called, you are consecrated, you are anointed, you are sealed, you are adopted, you are chosen. Why in the world would you go out with some of the people you go out on a date with? It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you go out with somebody who's lost, aimless, trying to figure out who they are and ain't half of what they think they are? They are that way because they don't know whose they are and to whom they belong. Know who you are. Know who you are and run a business. Know to whom you belong and the business belongs, then run the business, then steward it. That's the way it works. You have a righteousness, look in the mirror, it's there, you can't see it, but it is. Been bought with a price, you belong to God. You have direct access to God. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. There's so many privileges, so many blessings. It's like the guy that went to heaven and they're giving him a tour and he comes to a room and it's full of presents. The most elaborately packaged presents he's ever seen. It's literally as high as this room. And he looks a little closer and he's got his name on every one of them. And he says to the tour guide, what are all these presents in this room with my name on them? Oh, he says, I'm sorry, I, kinda, I almost wish you hadn't seen it, he says. Why? Well, these are all the things that we promised you and set apart for you that you either never used or never asked for. Oh. I guess I didn't really know who I was, did I? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. But you do now. At that moment, there's something you'll want to do that'll be the most irrelevant thing in heaven. Evangelism. It's then that you'll want to evangelize. 
because you'll realize that's where the power is. I was empowered, I was anointed, I was, I was a vessel, I was a tabernacle of the spirit, I was chosen, I was adopted, I was an ambassador, I was reconciled to God, I, I, I was a peacemaker, I was all those things, and I never used them, why? I didn't really know who I was. Now there's no need for it. I've been bought with a price. It's, I'm justified, I'm helped, I'm reconciled, I'm a joint heir, all of these things. You don't even realize this. You're a citizen. You see, when a kid came of age at the Roman Empire, on, on March 17th, when they had a ceremony, and that kid became an adult, they became a citizen of Rome. You know how big that was. Let me tell you something. This is gonna blow your mind. I'm glad you're sitting down. As we sit right here, right now, some of you are on your favorite pew, sitting in your favorite seat. But you're also seated in heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You're a citizen, most of you, of the United States of America, some of you Canada, but listen, you're also a citizen of heaven. What does that mean? It means you have a heavenly passport. You can travel from one realm to another. You can enter into the realm of glory and prayer and worship at the foot of your bed. You can linger in the presence of God. You can transcend this temporal thing we got going on here and just linger in the presence of the Lord. Divinity at his feet where there's almost this level of timelessness, you have that ability to come boldly to the throne of grace, literally into the manifest glory presence of God. You have that passport. You have that access. You have a stamped divine passport that gives you, as a king's kid, gives you entrance into the king's courts. But what good is it if you don't use it? Well, you know, you might, go to, you might go to Europe, Israel, Zimbabwe, but you can go into the eternality of the presence of God. You can't stay there, but you can get a touch there. Yes, you're all these things, as am I. And you're a personal eyewitness to what God does in your life. You're completely forgiven, Colossians 1.14. You're blameless and beyond reproach, Colossians 1.22. You're free from condemning charges, Romans 8.31. And you're not condemned, Romans 8 and 1. I don't know how much more free you could possibly be. And you're tenderly loved by God. Let me show you something. I'm going to put this slide up here. It's got three letters on it. F. S-H. I want to show you something that will help you understand you. Okay? And I, and, and I want to give you something here that will help you understand how to minister to other people. Equally as important. F-S-H. Let's say that they stand for Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You got it? The Godhead. All right, now, let's look at a verse, 2 Corinthians 13 and 14. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There it is. The F, the S, and the H have three distinct roles. Very overly simplified. The Father is love. The Son is grace. Holy Spirit is fellowship. Let me give you three more letters, same letters, F-S-H. When original sin entered the world, the first Adam felt fear for the first time. He was naked, though he felt shame for the first time. And the reaction, the action step to his incredible fear and shame was to hide. Fear, shame, and hiding. This is the the root, okay? This is the original root of bondage. This is the seed that went in the ground and trees of bitterness grew up and trees of anger grew up and trees of unforgiveness grew up and gardens, gardens of hostility and divisiveness came from that one seed. Fear, shame, and hiding. F, S, H. Adam was afraid. The second Adam willingly at Gethsemane, took on the cup of suffering. Adam covered himself. Jesus was publicly disgraced, hung naked on a tree. Adam hid in the trees. Jesus hung on one. The first Adam was in bondage. The second Adam reversed the seed of that bondage in word and in deed. He looked in the mirror and said, this is who I am, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Fear, shame, and hiding. Let's look at the next slide. A person who walks in fear, fear of man, fear of uh, an undue fear of what other people think about them, you codependence, fear, we're afraid to try, we're afraid to succeed, we're afraid to fail, we're afraid to be ourselves, we have to do something, we can't be ourselves, we have to be someone else. The whole culture is going through this. The TV remote cancel culture says, I don't, they don't say I was created in a certain way. And because I don't feel the way I should, I'm going to recreate myself because I don't know the creator and I'm going to cancel the fact that I'm a man. I'm going to cancel the fact I'm a woman. I'm going to cancel the fact I'm this. I'm going to cancel the fact I'm that and I'm going to become something else. They keep moving from channel to channel to channel. You got to know the creator. Perfect love cast out fear. If you got people in your life that are riddled by fear and it causes them great bondage, they need the love of the Abba before they need anything else. It's oversimplifying, but it's going to get you going. Ask yourself the question, my nephew, my niece, my son, my grandson, my granddaughter, my whoever, what is their issue? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it hiding? Minister to love of the Father. Perfect love cast out fear. The Son. There are those who are riddled and in bondage by shame. Shame is, is not that I've done wrong. Shame is that because I've done wrong, I'm wrong. I'm worthless. 
And some of the elemental spiritual forces we came up with taught us this, planted that seed in our heart that we should be ashamed. The entire gospel in the New Testament is so different than the way we present the gospel now. The gospel then was to bring honor to a person in Christ to eradicate their shame. We bring Christ to people for the forgiveness of their sins. Problem with that, not as it's right, but the problem with that is no one thinks they sin anymore. Why would they need to be forgiven? If a person has an issue with shame, they need the grace of the Son. And if a person has a problem with hiding, hiding behind what? A mask, a house, an addiction, a career, for possessions, whatever the case, whatever they're hiding behind, sarcasm, whatever it is, what they need is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It'll tell you, first of all, how to pray for somebody, and it'll tell you how to minister to somebody, at least in the beginning. Three things people want in this world, and if they don't get them, they'll recreate themselves or recreate their scenario to find it, but to no avail. What is that? They want to feel loved, they want to feel valued, and they want to feel like they belong because they're afraid, because they're ashamed, because they're hiding. I know of what I speak, as do many of you. When you see someone in bondage, even yourself, gently apply the love of the Father. Gently explain the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give them that sense of belonging and friendship through the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll take one, two, if not three steps nearer to the kingdom of God. When you look into the word as a mirror, you not only look to see what it says, but you look to put it into action. Why? Because faith without works is what? Dead. When you apply the word to your life, the outcome is an increased awareness of your identity in Christ. Through your identity in Christ, you live according to that identity. You put into practice the things you've been given. You use your citizenship in heaven to experience the presence of God. Everything that you read about in the New Testament and the Old is a literal demonstration of the message. Jesus doesn't talk about humility. He washes his disciples' feet. He doesn't talk about their need to be saved. He hangs on a cross. He doesn't pray extensively, time after time after time, day after day, week after week, year after year, for people to be saved without sending people to them to give them the gospel. 
He doesn't wish the leper a good day. He touches him. We're doers. People with identity do according to their identity. Haven't you told your kids or grandkids at one time? I'm sorry, we don't do that. We're Smiths, we don't do that. We're Johnsons, we don't do that. We're Banks, we don't do that. We're Jones, we don't do that. We're Hewins, we don't do that. That's not who we are. Comes from an honor-shame culture. Don't shame the family name. Don't shame the company you work for. That's not who we are. Friend, who are you right now? Apart from an explanation of the past and and an eloquent precursor to the future, who are you now, today? And if you're here today, think about this now. If you're here today and you're not in a relationship with Christ and you don't have this sense of adoption, chosenness, renewed mind, clarity, set apart, the absence of condemnation, the the legacy of the heir as an heir of Christ, the passport into heaven, access to the Father, to love, value, and be belong. What, what, what's your, what are you gonna use? What, what's your thing? What's your plan? What, what is it? What is it you need? What is, what's your plan? What are you gonna do? Who are you right now? What are you gonna do? What promises do you have? What, what, uh, what direction are you headed? Who, who, who are you? To whom do you belong? If you're here today and you don't have a personal, personal friendship, you may have acted like you have, or it may be a plan that you're going to put into place, but right now, no. What would, what would keep you from that? What, why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want chosen chosenness of God he already chose you you just have to choose him he chose everybody if you need to begin a personal relationship with him and you need your sins probably many of them but probably not as many as many here I gotta be honest with you, you start looking backwards, these people here aren't all that impressive. None of us are, (laughs) if you only knew. (laughs) If you only knew. You need the forgiveness of sin, like we all do, right? That's gotta be part of the plan. Because sin doesn't stay in the presence of a holy God for all eternity unless it's accounted for, covered, rendered neutral, and separated from you. And the only one that can satisfy the Father's requirement in that regard is the Son who died in the form of a man as our representative, was buried and rose again on the third day 
having conquered sin, hell, and the grave. What, what has conquered those things for you? What's your plan on that? Those are heavy subjects. So I, uh, you know, humbly invite you to receive him, to say yes to him. His, his choosing of you is, is adopted. Perhaps today is the day you come of age and become a citizen of heaven. If you're here today and you need this Jesus and you want prayer, I'll pray for you. The whole entire congregation will pray for you. Believe me. If you need to receive him, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going to welcome you. Does anyone here need Christ who's without him? Like the rest of us were at one time in our life. I just want you to raise your hand and we'll pray for you. Is that anyone here? You think about it for a few minutes. All the communicants, if you would come, please. We're going to prepare for Holy Communion. This communion is the last meal of Jesus Christ. Think of it as Jesus sentenced to death. This is the last meal he had. What meal would you have? He chose this one. And he chose to be a part of the meal, not to indulge himself in the pleasures of eating as a last meal before a death sentence, but as a sacrificial gift to you. Because it meets your greatest need. The cleansing of your sin and the wholeness through his brokenness. The night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Someone here needs to hear this. God blesses the bread before he breaks it. Someone here thinks they need to be broken first before they can be blessed. God blesses first, and then he breaks. There's, you can't perform enough to be acceptable. You're acceptable the way you are, I'm sorry. Took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sin. Drink ye all of it. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we reverently partake of these elements and receive your broken body and the blood of your son, Jesus. You hold all things together. For those of us broken in the wrong way, hold us, just hold us, hold us as we take this meal and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>